What's what's interesting to me though, it's a specific kind of character that's an embryologist. Yeah, we're all a bit OCD. (laughs) We're all nerds. Yeah, but do you know what? That brings me peace of mind as a patient. I want my embryologist to be a nerd. I do. It didn't occur to me that it could take as long as it did. Many countries are now on the verge of a baby bust. Infertility is extremely common. We believe what doctors tell us. Many of these couples don't know where to turn. This is a doctor that holds my happiness in his hands. I'm Danny, and turns out trying to get pregnant isn't easy. After two long years of serious hard work, I'm pretty much failing at 34. And I'm Simone, a midwife who has branched out into the world of fertility. I carry the baton of optimism and realism. Welcome to the Mission Baby podcast. Hello, and we're back with Mission Baby. And yes, our important mission is still going very strong. Yes, it is. And today we are thrilled to introduce one of the country's leading embryologists, Sophie Bird. Do you know, Danny, before I entered the world of assisted reproductive technology, I had absolutely no idea what an embryologist was and how important they are in helping people achieve their dreams of becoming parents. You and me both, Simone, I've got to be completely honest. When I first met my embryologist, I had to go away and do a lot of research as to what they do, how and why, and it just blew my mind. Suddenly, I had to get to grips with all that terminology, embryos, blastocysts, frozen embryo transfers versus fresh cycles, embryo glue and hatching. Well, today, with the help of Sophie, we are going to break down some of these processes, terms, and help you understand why it's such an important part of IVF and ICSI. Oh, thank goodness. So, welcome, Sophie. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show. (laughs) Thank you for coming in. So, Sophie, can you explain to us what the role of an embryologist is? Well, basically, we work behind the scenes to look after the eggs, sperm and embryos and keep them nicely tucked away in the lab till they're ready to go back into the uterus. So pretty important stuff there. Looking after sperm and looking after eggs. A very important babysitter. It is. (laughs) (laughs) So the first time you usually meet the embryologist is at egg collection and you might see them flittering between the theatre and the lab. And what they're doing is taking the tubes of the follicular fluid and searching out the eggs in amongst the debris, blood and fluid. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So, okay. So you have a test tube and it's full of fluid. And this fluid has come from inside a follicle. Wow. Inside a woman's ovary. And it's only at that point when the embryologist has a look through that fluid that we can actually definitively confirm whether or not there's an egg. That's incredible. Because until that point, you've been having scans. Yeah. And the scans, you've thought, "Mm, more or less, yeah, it's a good size. But there's absolutely no confirmation that there's an egg inside that fluid. Egg number does vary significantly and is usually linked to your AMH, which is the uh, antimalarian hormone test that you'll have done at the beginning of most cycles, and also age. That's the painful age that no woman likes to hear. And I think we've been quite honest with it. I think you have to be completely honest with the fact that woman's egg reserve count quality is going to start to diminish from 32 to 35. In our society, that's so young. So young. So young. And I know it's all money dependent, but there's always alternatives. If you get to an age where you can't use your own eggs, 
people then go on to use donor eggs. But it is, in our society, 32, 35. That's really young, right? It is spring chicken, yes. (laughs) Certainly in IVF terms. So let's not forget the boys, okay? We have to be very careful to remember the boys because they are 50% of the DNA makeup, let's not forget. So what actually do you do with the sperm? And what kind of advice do you offer and what do you do in the lab with the sperm? So, good question, Simone. The first time we might come into contact with the husband or partner is usually uh, during or before the cycle has even started to do a semen analysis. So that's quite important because it gives us a good idea of what to expect on the day. And it also gives us a chance to pick up any issues like production issues or if, you know, they've got stage fright and they, they might need to produce a sample at home and bring it in. We do see them usually before the women. So that first semen analysis, as I said, will give us an idea of what to expect. Exactly. Sometimes that can be done on the NHS as well. And it is quite time dependent. We would like it to be usually within three to six months before the planned egg collection. You know, if it's two years old, it may be out of date as such. And uh, semen analysis can change even week to week. Yeah. And we've touched on this before, Simone, haven't we? Like, the guys, they have it good because they can change everything within, what, is it three months? Is that the time frame? Yeah, it is. Um, I'm, I just feel really sorry for the guys. I think the girls have to do all the injections. The girls have to have the procedure, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe we're just the stronger sex, Danny. I yeah, don't know. Obviously. But I do. They feel a lot of pressure sometimes. Yeah, I get that. And it's that moment, oh, my goodness, I have to perform now. Is it going to be a good sample? <laughs> have I been taking the supplements correctly that my wife or girlfriend have I been, been eating the broccoli <laughs> absolutely I think I've seen in the last few years that I've been in this field I've seen stage fright and then you you see what goes on in the clinic or the hospital and you wonder what goes on at home when the pressure's on and you think they have a hard time too in a different way but it is 50 50 I agree with you Simone we do have a few things we can do to make things a bit easier for them So if they are going to suffer from stage fright or if they predict they may have uh, a bit of a wobbly on the day, then they can uh, produce a sample for freezing prior to the egg collection. So that's really as a backup. Okay, so Sophie, in terms of the sperm that you're analysing, there's different parameters that you're looking at. Break them down for us. Just tell us what they are and why they're important. So the first thing we'll look at is the concentration. And that basically means the number of sperm per mil of seminal fluid. So that's important because it gives us an idea of what numbers we've got to play with. And what are those numbers? So <laughs> what we, do you look for? <laughs> so we typically are looking for around 15 million and up. The next thing we'll look for is the motility. So that's how well the sperm are moving, what percentage are moving, and of the moving ones, how well they're moving. Okay, on a very basic level, that is absolutely fascinating. If you're looking at a sperm sample, you know some people have fish tanks and they look at fish swimming around. Well, hang on, that's nothing. (laughs) This is another level. It's another level. (laughs) Because you see the lazy suckers, don't you, who just don't (laughs) move. Lazy suckers. You do. You see the jittery ones that you go, you know, this person's telling me they're not taking any drugs hello but you see everything in the sperm sample we can tell quite a lot from the sperm sample so the last parameter we look at is the morphology so that's basically you might hear them say normal forms and a normal sample will have maybe four to five six seven if you're lucky percent normal forms 
So that sounds really low. Yeah. When we're talking, yeah, when we're talking about millions, millions and yeah. then only four to five percent of those millions, why so few normal forms? It's a numbers game. Because they produce so many millions of sperm, they don't need to all be normal. We just need a One. couple. A couple, <laughs> yeah. We can see things like two tails, two heads, no heads, um, all <laughs> sorts of... It sounds like something of Jurassic Park, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> like Doctor Who-like. Exactly, yeah. It is quite interesting to see if you ever get the chance to look down a microscope and look at sperm. It's really quite interesting. So you've got the sperm sample. So then what happens next? What is, what's in the process? Well, the semen analysis will usually d- decide what kind of treatment we're going to be recommending on the day. So the two main types of treatment that are affected by the semen analysis results, the means of fertilising the eggs. So IVF and ICSI, have you heard of those? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay, so IVF essentially is where we leave the sperm in the dish with the eggs. For us to do IVF, we have to be quite pleased with the sperm parameters. They have to have shown their potential in terms of the count, motility and morphology. When we do ICSI, that stands for intracytoplasmic sperm injection. God, that's a tongue twister. (laughs) That's when we are a little worried about some of the sperm parameters and to avoid the potential for low fertilisation, we may inject the sperm into the mature eggs. I know one of the drawbacks of ICSI is that you're taking away natural selection on the one hand. Hold on, hold on. And on the other hand, some may argue, although I don't think there's much research to support this, that there could be potential fetal abnormalities as a result. So ICSI has been around for years and it is perfectly safe. There is I think one tiny study that showed a slightly reduced birth weight for ICSI-born babies, and that is it. And when I say slightly, not significantly, slightly. ICSI has been around for so many years, we know it's safe. The main drawback of ICSI is actually the damage rate. So not every egg will survive the injection procedure. Essentially, we're putting a little needle into the egg. So around 10% of eggs won't survive that injection procedure. So that's the main risk, really, to the eggs. Okay, so you've got the eggs in the incubator with either gone down the IVF route or the ICSI route. What is the next stage? What are you seeing, developing? What's going on there? This is where the nerdy bit comes in. (laughs) We like a nerdy bit. it was all nerdy. (laughs) It is, it is. So um, the next morning, we'll be looking for signs of normal fertilisation. Essentially, we're looking for little circles in the middle of the egg called pronuclei. And we're looking for two of those, indicating one female, one male. That suggests to us that the egg has done its job and the sperm has done its job and the egg has successfully fertilised. And then we usually culture those. um, We call them zygotes at that point. And we usually culture those for two, three or five days before embryo transfer. Wow. So to be clear, after you've done maybe the ICSI process, you've simply put the egg and the sperm together. At that point, they have not fertilised. So clinics um, and any hospitals treating anyone, they'll call that day zero because actually nothing's happened yet. They've just been put together. It's like going on a blind date. (laughs) it it. doesn't mean they're boyfriend and girlfriend yet no exactly and they should be showing normal signs of fertilization about 16 to 18 hours after mixing so after either ivf or ICSI. 
And then usually we'll keep them tucked away in the incubators and have a check on them every now and again. So there's a few different types of incubators and you may have heard a lot about embryoscope or time-lapse. Time-lapse, yeah. So time-lapse essentially is an incubator like our traditional incubators but it records the embryos every four minutes or so it will take a little snapshot of the embryo it means that we don't have to take the embryos out of the incubator to have a look at them statically gosh that's incredible because there's no external factors that may have an adverse effect on them at all is there Well, the incubators are quite regulated, so they'll have a certain gas concentration of carbon dioxide, a low oxygen tension, and normally they'll be kept at around 37.2, 37.3 degrees. So they try and mimic the uterus as much as possible, but the embryoscope means that we don't have to take them out of that environment to have a look at them and give them a, a quality or cell count the next day. Some labs will use time lapse routinely, some don't. So there are no big studies to show that embryoscope or time-lapse incubation is any better than normal incubation. You've actually touched on something that's actually probably one of the most frustrating things for people going through this process, because there's so much in in this land of assisted reproductive technology where there's no randomised control trials. People can't actually recommend it to you with any great gusto or with any great research behind it. They can't say that there's a it's a gold standard use because there's just not enough trials. How do you get more trials? Well, you have to get more people Winning. who are who are going through trying to be parents to be part of the trial. Who wants to be part of the trial? Yeah. No, you just want to be a parent. It's one of those things in this field that you just find yourself going round. Kind round-round. of a double-edged sword, isn't it? It's interesting you say that, Simone. There are quite a few clinical trials going on through the NHS and private clinics, usually a couple at a time. Most of the time, when they're recruiting for those trials, the patients will actually, if they agree to being part of that trial, they'll actually get free treatment oh. as part of the, as um, the incentive. incentive to take part in the research. So actually it can be a really good thing to be part of this research and without the research we we never get the answers mm-hmm. so it's really important that if you're offered to be part of a trial you think long and hard about yeah. whether you want to contribute to that research so let's go back to that incubator we've got the eggs and the sperm it's all percolating in that little arena so what happens next like what um because I know there's a bit of a waiting game and it's a very important waiting game so what happens next Sophie so typically the embryo will start dividing on day two so the end of day one day two it will go to two cells then divide to four cells then divide to eight cells by day three it should have around six to eight cells already so So quick isn't it in such a short space of time it's it's nothing compared to the next few days (laughs) so hold my horses (laughs) well yeah after that cellular stage we they turn into what we call morellas which essentially is a ball of glued together cells and that's that happens on day four of culture and at that point it's very difficult for the embryologist to even see the cell boundaries or give them a quality scoring so we tend to not look at the embryos at all on day four and then by day five and day six we're looking at blastocysts and that is the key dun, word dun, dun. This, the is, this is the, the holy grail <laughs> so so why are they the holy grail well a blastocyst is basically a ball of around 200 cells maybe more maybe that's less that's amazing so you've just you know you were gone from you were five and six by, five to and 200 six. In, in five days yeah that's crazy exactly 
So we stop counting the cells at that point. The embryologists don't even try to count the cells. <laughs> but we're looking for different features. So a blastocyst is essentially, if you can imagine, a hollow football yeah. and then a smaller football inside that hollow football. So we've got two parts of the embryos, essentially. So we've got the inner cell mass, which is the mass inside the football. The football inside the football. <laughs> <laughs> You're trying to appeal to the men out there. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, know, I know football's for girls too now. <laughs> no, it makes sense. It makes sense. And we give that equality scoring, A being the best. And then we give a scoring to the what we call the trophectoderm cells, which are the cells on the outside football. Which okay. will later go on to form the placenta. Yes, well oh, done, Simone. Yeah. Thank you very much. <laughs> the inner cell mass becomes a baby. Exactly, Simone. Oh, well All my done. midwifery training wasn't wasted. <laughs> but day five is quite a crucial day, isn't it? Every day is a crucial day, day, but normally you'll hear patients really eager to have a blastocyst transfer. Um, I've read, I've read somewhere that blastocyst is best, and I, I only want blastocyst for transfer. Well, actually, it's not as simple as that. So we will usually give you a call on day one with the fertilisation results. And then by that time, we'll know how many embryos you have in culture. If we look at them on day three and we cannot select the best one or two for transfer, then we may consider keeping them in culture to the blastocyst stage. We are scientists, we don't like guessing. So if we feel like we're going to be guessing on day three, because there may be three or four nice eight cell embryos, then we'll take them for a further two days of culture so that we can select more easily the best embryos because only good quality embryos will get to a blastocyst stage. So there'll be a drop-off at every stage. Usually the numbers get smaller. So by day Mm. five, you may have fewer embryos, but we can clearly see the winning ones. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And that's what is quite a nerve-wracking time. A, to get to wait for that phone call from the embryologist to say, you know, what has fertilised and what hasn't. And then waiting each day at day three and day five to what then has matured. From personal experience, (laughs) waiting for that initial phone call the day after egg collection. And we did ICSI. So waiting for that phone call was quite... um, heavy I don't know if that's the right word but it was very emotional to find out what had worked well really. you don't know you could have even though we it's don't, ICSI, exactly. you could still have no fertilization it's quite um unusual to get no fertilization with ICSI unless you're talking about really small egg numbers okay. so with IVF there is a chance of f- total failed fertilization and that occurs where there's an interaction issue between the sperm and the eggs If they've never met each other before and they cannot bind to each other, then actually you can end up with nothing fertilised. And in those cases, it's heartbreaking because in the UK, we cannot do what we call rescue ICSI. So we can't can't then go and inject those eggs that haven't fertilised because they've already been exposed to sperm. So it's illegal for us to rescue any of those eggs. So if that were to happen, what would you advise going forward for that couple? Definitely the way around that would be to do ICSI. But obviously by then you've had your first cycle. The chances of a failed fertilisation event, total failed fertilisation, is rather low, probably around 3 to 5%. So people shouldn't worry about it yeah. too much. But it is a real numbers game because, as you've mentioned before, Sophie, going from egg collection then day one to then getting to, you know, hopefully day three and then day five... I wasn't aware at the time how drastic the numbers do really fall. So give us an example of how to prepare yourself for those For numbers. the drop-off. Yeah. So average egg number across the board is around 12. 
and, and this is just a, an example for you. So you may have 12 eggs, 10 of which may be mature. So usually around uh, 80%, so 90%. So that's the first drop-off. Yeah, so that's your first drop-off. Then once you've done ICSI, you might expect one not to make it through the injection procedure. So then you're left with nine. And out of those, you might expect somewhere around 70% to fertilise. So you might be left with seven if you're lucky. That was the second drop-off. Yeah. Then they've got to grow and divide. So I would expect around 95%, so hopefully all of them, to carry on dividing to the day three stage. But not all of them will be of good quality by then. So you might be looking at 50 to 60% good quality for the average patient. So then you're down to, what, four or five maybe. And then of those, you expect 40 to 50% to get to blastocysts. So from your 12 eggs, you may be down to two or three blastocysts. It, it's it's scary, isn't it? I mean, it's it's quite a terrifying prospect for anyone going through this. But I think it is about managing expectations. It is. It really is. And I think I know I'm very, very careful to say my stats. You know, obviously, it's a one in three, one in four chance of getting a pregnancy. Clearly, from the get go, it's not about being pessimistic because I'm hugely optimistic. It's just about being real. And I think yeah. people can manage their self and their emotions if you're honest and real with them. If you say, hey, welcome, you know, in a few weeks time, you'll be walking away pregnant. Not true. Mm. And I think most embryologists are quite factual when they speak to patients. So they will give you a realistic idea of what they expect the next day or what they expect on day five when they call you on day three. So we don't fluff things. Yeah. We just That's say what how the nurses do. <laughs> we, we do a little bit fluffy and then the embryologists do facts. Okay, so you've got to day five. So what happens now? Hopefully a small number, but a good number of blastocysts. And you grade these then depending on what your treatment, whether you are going to be freezing them or doing a fresh cycle. What happens next? So it's really about whether you go for one or two for transfer. So you'll hear hear this on the day of transfer. And the reason we wait until then is because we do like to see what the embryos have done so that we can give you our best advice. If you come in for transfer and we've got a beautiful AA grade hatching blastocyst, then we may recommend one depending on your age, especially if you've got surplus embryos that are suitable for freezing. If we're you know slightly concerned there's slightly lower quality blastocysts but there are some available we may suggest two to increase your chance of a pregnancy overall when you have two embryos back it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up with twins it may only increase your chance of pregnancy by five to ten percent it doesn't just double it so it's not Um, an automatic thing you're going to have twins if you put two embryos back inside you uh, exactly and in the uk um we are trying to get to the point where we have around 10% um, of our patients pregnant with twins. And the reason for this is because a twin pregnancy isn't as safe as a singleton pregnancy. I can reel off so many heartbreaking anecdotes to you right now, and I won't. People think, oh, twins are gorgeous and lovely, and they are. But the percentage of people who get to the end with twins is much less than those who start the journey with one. You're much more likely to get and have a baby to take home with you if you have one. A healthy baby, that's that's, what we want. Before you get pregnant, the only thing you can think about is being pregnant. Ultimately, you are actually opening the door to so many other things. The journey continues as when you have the children, the journey continues. But something can happen at any single point and you're much less likely for something negative to happen if you have one back. Yeah, it must be quite hard though when you talk to your patients that 
they automatically probably want to put if they've got two great embryos and they're like yeah just want to put two back in because the likelihood that hopefully one or even two will take so it must be quite hard for you guys to communicate to your patients the risks with having twins it is and personally I know everybody just wants to get there I mean I think everybody in the industry knows that people just want to become parents but I do have I have flashback as I'm speaking to you now I have flashback of people I know who have had things happen at any particular point in the journey and you can't believe how devastating that can be Mm. you know ultimately we just want people to walk away with a healthy child healthy mother cheesy as it sounds and go and have a healthy life and we know although it's so hard to get that message across it's so much more likely if there's one embryo back exactly and if we have good quality embryos to freeze that is your second third maybe fourth chance so we don't like to put two embryos back unless we're really sure that's the best thing for you and the risk of twins isn't too high but, you know, when I hear stories from overseas, okay, let me say America, America, India, crazy. India, they put seven embryos crazy. back. Are and you then, kidding? No, seven no. Seven embryos. Oh, yeah. It's, so here. That's mind boggling. Here, it would be completely Un- illegal. We can put three back as a maximum number if the patient is over 40. And the reason we're allowed to do that in the UK, that maximum of three, is because the chance of pregnancy is so low at that point that actually three isn't going to significantly put you at risk of a twin or multiple pregnancy. Just remind us, Danny, how many eggs did you get in the first place? So we got 20 eggs to start with. Um, That's amazing. Like a thumbs up there, Sophie. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite amazing. Um, 20 eggs. My stomach was pretty much a balloon. So we went through ICSI. On day one, we found out 16 had fertilized. So we found out 16 were viable. Um, and then we waited <laughs> and waiting for those phone calls every other day is tough. It really is. I mean, getting that first phone call to find out it actually gone well is the first piece of good news for a lot of people. And for us, it was the first piece of good news in two years. So, you know, we were incredibly emotional. We both cried. We were like, yes, it's worked. Something's worked. (laughs) (laughs) We're feeling really positive. On day three, there were nine embryos that were looking better than the rest, which was really positive. And then we came to day five. We had four embryos get to blastocyst stage, which was amazing. And then they were keeping an eye on an underdog on day six and on day six we got the phone call that it had proven very pretty and joined the gang and then they froze everything so they froze five of them for me because we decided to do a frozen embryo transfer what is the difference between a frozen embryo transfer and a fresh cycle basically in a fresh cycle we would put embryos straight back into the uterus in the same cycle as the egg collection So five days after egg collection, essentially. In a frozen cycle, we essentially defrost the embryos. That sounds really strange, doesn't it? They're on ice. That's what I kept thinking, like my little embryos are on ice. Having a lovely time in the freezer. (laughs) They are actually stored at minus 196 degrees in liquid nitrogen. So they're not just on ice. They're (laughs) They're very, very cold. (laughs) So we can thaw the embryos out and then put them back into the uterus in a frozen embryo replacement cycle. 
And so there's a thinking with um, frozen embryo transfers that it's a little bit less taxing on the body because you've had some time away from when you've done your IVF drugs from the fresh cycle, if you weren't going into the fresh cycle, to then have a little bit of a break and then do a frozen embryo transfer. So you've had some time just to kind of recalibrate have a bit more balance within well, hormones. There, there are some groups who there is specific research that okay. shows that it's much better for women to have a rest. If a woman has PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, then there's clear proof that it's much better for a woman to freeze their embryos. It's That's true to me. And put them back. Yeah, it's all to do with the progesterone levels and the other hormones. So basically we can miss the implantation window and the uterus can become ready too early in a fresh cycle sometimes. And then essentially we'd be putting the embryos back into a suboptimal environment. So for some women, it is advantageous to freeze embryos and then actually thaw them out and do a frozen cycle later on when we have a bit more control over the uterine environment. And so when you freeze the embryos, I think a lot of women are probably quite worried about when you defrost them what is the statistics of the embryo surviving that thaw so we've got really good at freezing embryos in the last 10 years we've developed something called vitrification so we used to freeze embryos quite slowly and take them down to the frozen state quite slowly now we snap freeze them so essentially we dehydrate them take the fluid out of the embryo replace that with cryoprotectant a bit like antifreeze oh gosh okay (laughs) oh my goodness (laughs) To stop the crystal formation wow. inside the cells, damaging this the cells. So my embryos had a lot of antifreeze. <laughs> <laughs> and that helps them survive the freezing and thawing process. So essentially, now most labs will see about 95% of frozen embryos survive the freezing and thawing process. That's incredible. That's incredible. And that's helped the frozen embryo transfer rate become um, so good in the UK because we now have comparable results from our frozen embryos than we do from fresh. During my IVF cycle, I've been offered many things, including embryo glues. Can you just explain a little bit about what it is and should we be adding them onto our treatment? There's a number of add-ons that you might hear about during your cycle or before your cycle, hopefully. (laughs) And one of them is embryo glue. So essentially that's hyaluronic acid and it is supposed to help the implantation of the embryo in the uterus. So essentially when we take the embryo up into the catheter to pass it through the cervix into the uterus, it will have sat in the embryo glue for hopefully a few hours prior to the embryo transfer and will go into the uterus, hopefully implant. It's not a fail-safe. There's very poor evidence behind embryo glue. What they have shown is that it's most useful for women where they've had recurrent implantation failure, maybe one or two cycles where implantation hasn't occurred with quite good embryos, or if they're of advanced maternal age, so kind of 38, 9, 40 or over. I have to say, I absolutely hate the name embryo glue. It It gives that impression that the embryo sticks onto the uterus and there's no sticking, right? It it doesn't sound pleasant, does it? I, I love the word implantation because that embryo has to actively implant into the uterus. It's not just a stick glue. Some of these words, I wonder who comes out with them. I mean, embryo glue is just like... We've talked about the language before, haven't we? Oh, it drives me crazy. So assisted hatching is another one of those 
add-ons you might hear about. Yeah. And essentially, assisted hatching is when we make a small hole in the shell of the embryo. So every embryo has a shell called the zona pellucida, and it surrounds the embryos, the dividing cells. And they need to hatch out of that shell to implant into the uterus. So wow. you referred to that earlier. You referred to the embryo hatching, which is obviously a positive sign and could potentially be a good indicator to implantation because the embryo is actively doing things. So assisted hatching, talk us through what you do. I don't do it very often because the evidence behind it is really very poor. And it's been shown to have absolutely no impact on the implantation potential of an embryo. What we do know is that occasionally the embryologist will recommend assisted hatching in frozen embryo replacement cycles or if the zona pellucida is abnormally thick. And that's I'm, the outer shell. Yeah. So really, quite rarely is it needed. That's really good to know because I know in some private clinics there's a cost attached to this as well. And if the cost is mounting, it's very good to know what's good to go for and what's not good to go for. I think the important thing to say is that um, there is very limited evidence for some of these techniques as long as they're not detrimental, as long as there's no harm in doing them, some women will find comfort that they have done everything possible that's out there to even give them that tiny uh, increased chance of successful pregnancy. You know, you're in such a fragile state and you're almost at your weakest point and it's sometimes very easy for these private clinics to sell these things as add-ons when actually they may not be required definitely it's hard though when it's you know you want it so much if someone's telling you you could have this and it could make the difference if it doesn't work you'd then wonder what if i'd have just done that exactly as as long as somebody puts the seed into your mind you're going to go away and think "Mm, maybe that's it's the what ifs that gets people so some women will have absolutely everything that's on offer at private clinics because they don't want to say well what if I had tried the assisted hatching what if I had tried embryo glue food for thought Sophie I know the science is moving really quickly I've heard of PGD pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and I've heard of PGS pre-implantation genetic screening just break them down for us So pre-implantation genetic diagnosis is used when we want to avoid genetic condition being passed down in a family. So a good example would be something like Huntington's, which is really degenerative disease and uh, can affect families through inheritance. So children will have a 50% chance of inheriting that disease from their parents. Now, if we have a patient that has that genetic disease and wants to eradicate it in the next generation, we can create embryos, take them to the blastocyst stage, take a few cells away from the trophectoderm, so biopsy a few cells away, genetically analyse those whilst we freeze the embryo, then depending on the result, decide what to do. So usually if they're positive for the disease, they will be discarded, and if they're clear of the disease then they'll be used in a frozen embryo replacement cycle and I think the thinking behind it is if we can create healthier families without these genetic diseases then actually the NHS will be spending less money helping those children live in the long term in the long term exactly so if you've got the healthy child that you know is clear of the disease 
then that's better for the family, better for the community, better for the NHS. And so Sophie, can you explain about PGS, which is pre-implantation genetic screening? Yes, so this is the screening usually offered in private fertility clinics. Essentially, it involves the same procedure, so taking five to six cells away from the trophectoderm part of the embryo at the blastocyst stage, freezing the embryo, analysing the cells, and what they're looking for are common abnormalities like uh, trisomy 21, which you may know as Down syndrome. So we call them aneuploides, essentially where there's too many chromosomes or not enough chromosomes. And you do this when there's an hereditary risk in the family or is this done purely at the suggestion of the clients? So usually it's done to get a healthy pregnancy quicker. So as I said earlier, if we've got 10 embryos, all of identical quality, if we apply PGS to them, we may find that some of them are unhealthy and not suitable really for transfer So we would transfer the normal ones first to achieve a healthy pregnancy quicker. We know it's a massive postcode lottery and the amounts of money that's involved can be huge. If you don't have an NHS facility close to you, I don't know if that's ever going to become more fair in this country. I don't know what your view is. Well, most CCGs, so local authorities, have actually cut the funding for IVF in recent years. And so some areas have now no funding for IVF. The NICE guidelines are that people should be offered three cycles, but that's rarely the case now. So private clinics are obviously cashing in on the fact that the criteria is quite strict for having NHS treatment. And as you said, postcode lottery, you can literally live one street away from another couple and that couple might get two free cycles on the NHS and you might only be eligible for one. Or none. Or none. So it's really unfair. Well, I think that's where talking about this and talking about the issues surrounding infertility and the fact that it's a huge problem that's affecting so many people. So I think as long as we keep the conversation going... I hope that one day we can make a little bit of a difference. Mm. It's about keeping it on the agenda. And if nobody's talking about it, it's not on the agenda. So, no. Danny, we're doing that. We're talking <laughs> we're about removing, it. No, we're removing the stigma, but we're talking about it honestly, frankly, and just putting it out there. Sophie, I think we have to really, really thank you. You've put so much fact out there. So You're welcome. Fascinating, incredible research. And it just feels like this is a real area that's developing year by year at quite a rate as well. Day by day. Day by day. And please my piece of advice to patients would be if you have any questions come with them written down ask the embryologist we're more than happy to talk to you more than happy i think people sometimes when they're speaking to you they become a bit blinded as if she's talking about my embryos what's really happening what does she mean whereas either if you prepare the questions beforehand or even come back with them afterwards just to get clarity i think that helps peace of mind as well totally. it feels like you're more in control of the situation as well just finding out a bit more from the expert sophie thank you so much thank you sophie you're welcome If you want to know more about some of the things we've been talking about, have a look at our show notes for further information and support. Do get in touch with us on Instagram at The Mission Baby Podcast or on email themissionbabypodcast at gmail.com. Keep the faith. Keep the faith.